Listener Production. Starting off today with a bit of briefing news, next year we're going to launch an email newsletter which will be a great way for you briefing listeners to stay in the loop on the show. It's where the quiz is going to happen. So if you've enjoyed that on Instagram, we're going to step it up next year and bring it into the newsletter. It's also going to make it easier for you to get in touch with us directly with your feedback and your story ideas. So instead of getting lost in the DMs, you can email us directly and tip us off about stories or tell me when I screw up on the podcast. If you want to get involved in the newsletter ahead of its launch next year, you can jump into our Instagram bio There's a link there where you can sign up. We got a really good response from you for our survey in October and we learned so much more about what's working and not working for you on the briefing. So we'd love to have you on the email newsletter. So hit the briefing Instagram bio. There's a link there. Sign up for the newsletter coming out next year. In today's briefing, Antoinette Latouf joins me for a fascinating follow-up to a briefing we did two weeks ago. Hey, Tom. Yes, that big Bitcoin trial in Florida has reached a verdict. And it's a very good one for the Australian man who claims to be the inventor of Bitcoin. Thank you, everyone, for all your support over all of the years. This has been a remarkably good outcome and I feel completely vindicated. So that's Craig Wright, the Australian who says he's the creator of Bitcoin. And there was a lot of intrigue and hope that the trial might solve the mystery of whether or not he really was the creator of Bitcoin. Yeah, so in this briefing, did the trial shed any light on that Bitcoin mystery? And why is Craig Wright so happy with the outcome? First, here are today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 9th of December. Hello, Tom. It's Jan Fran here with... One of our briefing friends, Natasha Belling. <laughs> it's a bloody party this morning. Everyone's here, Tash. It is, but it's a COVID-safe party, unlike what's unfolding in the UK. Oh, indeed. We're going to get to that. Let's hit the news of the day, shall we? There is so much happening at the moment, Jan. Let's start uh, back here in Australia, when Queensland has recorded its first cases of Omicron, uncovering a new variant of the COVID strain in the process. And I want to give a huge uh, thank you to our forensic scientific services, because... It is their work that has led to the International Committee now actually reclassifying Omicron into two uh, lineages, and we have both of them here in Queensland. That is State Health Minister Yvette Darth speaking there. Yeah, so she's talking about this new lineage of the strain, uh, slightly different to what we've known Omicron to be thus far. It's been dubbed Omicron-like. It was one of the first two Omicron cases uncovered in Queensland yesterday, both of which have been in hotel quarantine. Now, the state's chief health officer said that Omicron-like, the reason it's called that is because it shares half the mutations of the original Omicron. Um, Its level of severity, though, and whether or not it's going to be resistant to vaccines, unknown. Meanwhile, in the UK... Some big news. Massive news breaking this morning, Jan, where it's interesting to see both on the back of Delta, the new cases of Omicron are dramatically increasing. Uh, The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson held a press conference this morning and also one of the top health experts in the UK, Professor Chris Whitty, says this is really interesting, that Omicron infection rates are doubling in the UK extraordinarily Mm. fast every two to three days. 
He adds there's a two-week delay between people getting infected with COVID and ending up in hospitals. So the UK, where it's different to what it is right here, is they're going into winter and mm. it's on the back of an increase in Delta cases. They now have this new threat with Omicron. So Boris Johnson has triggered what he's calling Plan B, these new COVID measures in England. They include more people working from home, vaccine passports and more mandatory wearing of face masks in what they call high-risk settings in an effort to try and stop the spread of Omicron but also reduce the pressure on an already overstretched hospital system. I must say I have an eyebrow raised because Boris Freedom Day Johnson doesn't like restrictions, so the fact that he's putting some back in place shows that there's a need to be alert, possibly not alarmed, but definitely alert here. I find it also really interesting. I know we're not in the same situation here in Australia because we have such an extraordinarily high vaccination rate Mm. and we're not going into winter, but it does kind of err on the side of caution, especially in New South Wales, where interestingly, the New South Wales Premier is saying nothing to see here. We're getting rid of masks in a lot of settings, including supermarkets, come December 15. Mm, Just on New South Wales, 34 cases thus far. Also one in Victoria, two in Queensland. It's getting round. And a doubling, almost a doubling of cases from was it Tuesday to Wednesday? So almost 400, I think around 400 yesterday. So it will be very, very interesting to see how this plays out. Pfizer Biotech says tests show three shots of their COVID vaccine provides effective protection against the Omicron variant. The manufacturers announced two jabs followed up by a booster was just as effective against Omicron as the two initial doses were against the original COVID strain. Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt says more boosters were needed as new variants emerged. The variants such as Omicron and inevitably there will be more variants and more variations. Uh, We know that the boosters will help keep us safe. Greg Hunt saying the boosters will help keep us safe, sort of broadly in line with the findings of a South African study that was out this week, um, which showed that two doses of the current Pfizer vaccines not enough to protect against the Omicron um, in the same way that they protect against other variants. Three shots, which include a booster, may just get us to a similar level of protection. I use the word may loosely because it is important to note this was just a preliminary study and that also Pfizer's data hasn't been peer-reviewed and was based on a very small sample size. So still very early days, but some promising bits of information. I am just super confused because from the outset we were told the best way to stay protected against especially the Delta strain was to be double vaccinated. And then would you be a bit cynical, one may say, with the boss of Pfizer saying you need a third dose of my product to know that you're protected. But what guarantee do we have that that's going to play out as they wish it will? These studies look promising. We've always known that we were going to get boosters. Yes. So now it's just definitely get a booster by the sound of it. And I think this is more evidence why they need to roll out a really effective education campaign because I still think there's a lot of confusion in the Australian public about when you should get the vaccine booster. We found out today that in some circumstances you can actually get your booster five months after your Mm. second vaccine, not six months. So to tell people where they can go and to see their GP, because I still think the education campaign is really confusing on when you need that booster vaccine and why it's so important. 
The UK has become the latest country to announce a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics after Scott Morrison announced the move yesterday. It will come as no surprise that the Australian government will not be sending any uh, official representatives uh, to the forthcoming Winter Games in, in China. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson revealed this morning no British officials would be attending the Games in February after a similar announcement from the US earlier this week. Yeah, so China responded to Australia's announcement at least yesterday. Um, it called it political posturing and it also added, oh, that no one would care about whether Australian officials came or not. That was a bit of a jab. There's been a number of issues, though, that have sparked these boycotts, um, one of them being the safety of tennis player uh, Peng Shui. Uh, she accused a senior Communist Party figure of sexual assault and essentially disappeared from public view. The other is, of course, this ongoing um, abuse of human rights against the Uyghur minority population, which includes mass detention and reports of torture. Gladys Berejiklian is expected to rule out joining federal politics after the Prime Minister yesterday admitted the former New South Wales Premier was now unlikely to run. She may choose not to to go ahead here, I suspect, but that's a matter for her. Yeah, so nine newspapers and the ABC are both reporting that um, Gladys Berejiklian is quote-unquote very unlikely to contest Tony Abbott's old seat of Warringah in Sydney. Um, This is despite some solid lobbying from senior federal Liberals this week. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's like Gladys is front and centre and then all of a sudden the narrative changes very, (laughs) very, very quickly. The PM's backtrack yesterday came after two days of publicly pushing for Miss Berejiklian to join the Liberals in Canberra, saying she had been treated badly by a corruption inquiry in New South Wales. Yeah, treated badly or held to account, you know. (laughs) Comsi, comsa, depends how you see it. And look, nothing to see with uh, the uh, ICAC in New South Wales, is there? And why would we need a federal ICAC? (laughs) Oh, God, don't even get me started on a federal ICAC. Oh, my gosh. I did hear, though, that um, some of the reporting was suggesting that Gladys Berejiklian is done with politics and is looking forward to working in the private sector. For possibly a lot more money (laughs) and far less stress. Yeah. Sounds appealing, doesn't it? It does. And Novak Djokovic has been included on the entry list for the Australian Open. No guarantee that he will be able to play in the event in January, though. So his name, the world number one, his name appeared on the draw yesterday. Issue is, he still has not revealed his vaccination status and the Victorian government saying you need to be double vaxxed in order to play. Always special conditions, aren't they? Some may allege for big sporting stars in this country. Tennis Australia confirmed yesterday players will only be able to enter the country and compete if they have been fully vaccinated or, and this is very interesting, Mm. if they are granted a medical exemption. What is a medical exemption? But News Corp is reporting this morning the Serbian is in the process of applying for an exemption. I'd love to know the details of that. Yeah, so would I, because the Victorian government said they're not going to make any exceptions here. It doesn't matter how big a tennis player you are. We might soon find out that Novak Djokovic has a very serious case of athlete's foot and can't get vaccinated. (laughs) But do you know what the details are? How can you get an exemption? Oh, well, I think you have to have uh, some kind of condition that suggests that the vaccine either will be... Uh, hurtful to you or won't work or you're immunocompromised and you can't get vaccinated. There's heaps of sort of reasons to get medical exemptions. I just don't know if Novak Djokovic necessarily falls into that category. Watch this space. He loves a COVID party. Sure does. All right. Thank you, Tash. We're going to hop out. As always, you can hear Tash on your morning agenda and the listener app. 
Is it a better podcast than ours? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Such a pleasure. So lovely working with you, Jan. We'll see you soon. Tom and Antoinette are taking over. Hey everyone, so two weeks ago on The Briefing, we brought you the story of the big Bitcoin trial in Florida and it involved Craig Wright, an Aussie computer scientist who says, he claims, he's behind the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto who created Bitcoin and reportedly still owns around 80 billion Australian dollars worth of Bitcoin. And that's of course, depending on the price on any given day. And the trial has wrapped up. So the family of the former business partner of Craig Wright, they claim they were owed half of those coins, a huge amount of money, and it was nearly a hung jury. But in the end, the jurors decided that the Kleiman family didn't have a right to half of that Bitcoin fortune, but they were compensated for a different joint venture worth 140 million Australian dollars. And Tom, that's still a hell of a lot of money. It is to me. (laughs) But maybe not for Craig Wright, who appears to be very happy about the outcome. So here's the statement he made immediately after the ruling. Thank you everyone for all your support over all of the years. This has been a remarkably good outcome and I feel completely vindicated. Next, there are still more fights. We are going to make everything changed from cryptocurrency to digital cash the way it's meant to be. My original invention's coming back. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long term, and I'm here for the fight. And each victory we get takes us closer to a world where digital cash is used. Not a global casino, but real digital cash, where people in third world countries can make money, hold money, and trade. What an interesting statement. That's a really strong statement. So let's find out how the court came to this decision and what, if anything, we learned about the mystery of who invented Bitcoin. Paul Vigna is an author and cryptocurrency expert at the Wall Street Journal and joins us now. Paul, great to have you back on the briefing. Straight to the main question, did the courts come even close to proving whether or not Wright controlled Nakamoto's 1.1 million coins? No, they didn't. And and this is a it's a weird case in that it's not really concerned with the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. It's concerned with the nature of this business relationship between these two men. But the only reason anybody really cares about yeah. it is because the business relationship between these two men might have shed light on who is the creator of Bitcoin. And What ended up happening was that the jury basically said that Craig Wright, the defendant, this Australian computer programmer living in the UK, did not abuse his relationship with Dave Kleiman, the plaintiff, who was a Florida computer programmer who died in 2013. The family of Kleiman had been arguing that the two invented Bitcoin together, and after Dave died, Craig actually took all the intellectual property and took all the Bitcoin that they had mined together, and that he owed. Dave's family, half of it, which would have ended up being somewhere in the the realm of 25, 30 billion, depending on where Bitcoin is. However, the jury said that Craig didn't do that. They did not find that there was some business relationship that Craig either fraudulently concealed or, or stole money from or robbed or anything. Because they didn't do that, Craig is not going to be forced to pay tens of billions in any kind of jury award. And he is not going to be forced to prove that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. So how can you define what happened in that relationship without knowing what that relationship did? If you can't say whether or not they together or Craig Wright on his own invented 
Bitcoin, how can you determine what the nature of that relationship was without knowing what they actually did? Right, right. And well, and this is going to be the problem for us is that what they didn't find was enough evidence to prove that Craig Wright and Dave Kleiman created Bitcoin together, that they had an agreement ahead of time to create Bitcoin together, and that they mined these Bitcoins together as part of that, and that Craig later hid that relationship. They're saying there isn't enough evidence to prove that that was the case. And because of that, we are not awarding the plaintiffs the tens of billions that they were seeking. So the court did rule that Wright owed the Kleimans $140 million for intellectual property rights for a company they shared. So what was the nature of that intellectual property and was it related to Bitcoin? There was this business partnership. It was registered by Dave Kleiman in Florida. Craig was involved in it. They did have this short-lived business partnership that went on. The one uh, count that they did find in the $100 million award that they did give them, you know, I mean, it's not an insignificant amount of money. At one point, these guys did mine some Bitcoin together, but it wasn't as part of creating Bitcoin. So what they're saying is that, yeah, these guys did do some work on their computers together that resulted in about $100 million in Bitcoin and that Craig now owes Dave $100 million. I mean, I was talking with attorneys for both sides throughout that deliberation period. And I mean, even the attorneys at times thought they were going to get a hung jury, that the jury was not going to be able to come to any kind of verdict and there was going to be a mistrial. And Craig Wright, just in that audio we heard, he says the fight is not over yet. What's the new battleground? Craig is still claiming that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, that he invented Bitcoin, that he created it, and he has been saying for a long time that he is going to perfect it. After he kind of got locked out of the Bitcoin community, because when he came back, they didn't believe him and they still don't believe him, he launched his own version of Bitcoin, which he calls Bitcoin SV. The SV stands for Satoshi's Vision. Get it? (laughs) And he has claimed that he's going to keep working on building out Bitcoin as a financial network. That's what he was really referring to. One of the other interesting things to see will be throughout this whole thing, his attorneys have said, look, when this is over, we are going to prove that we own those million some odd Bitcoins that Satoshi Nakamoto mined. They are Craig's and we are going to move them and we are going to donate them for charitable purposes. That's exactly what they were saying to us. So Craig still says that he is going to move, that he owns those Bitcoin. They are his and he will move them at some point. He will cash them out at some point. I don't know what that point will be. And I don't know if anyone knows, but I guess that's part of what his pledge is. So interesting to hear, Paul, that you were speaking to attorneys on both sides. What were the plaintiff's attorneys saying? I mean, were they shooting for this big number, knowing that really they're more likely to get this smaller number of $100 million? And were they therefore quite happy with this outcome? Yeah, they said they were quite happy with the outcome. I can't imagine that they actually are because their lawsuit had 10 claims in it and they got rejected on nine and they were asking for tens of billions and they didn't get tens of billions. I don't know. If, if you're a lawyer representing a client, you think about it as as you went after as much as you could possibly imagine, and you got $100 million for your mm. client. And like I said, $100 million mm. for you know 99.5% of the people on the mm. planet That's a lot of money. is a fortune you're never going to see. So the lawyers said they were very happy with the, the verdict, and maybe they really are. 
When we started this interview, I was asking, you know, how can they really decide, you know, what the spoils were if we don't know what they did? But then when you think about it from a a legal perspective, if you were going to make Craig Wright hand over $35 billion, you know, half of that, the value of those coins, you would need an extraordinary amount of evidence to prove that he actually had access to that Bitcoin fortune and therefore was the creator of Bitcoin. And and that actually would have been very hard to do in a court of law. Yes. But I think that's what made this case so interesting is that that was held out as a possibility that could have happened. So we held out high hopes that this trial in Florida might somehow reveal the great mystery of the, the founding of Bitcoin. We didn't get that far. But what do you think we did learn? Do you think it cleared up any of the mysteries about the invention of Bitcoin at all? No, I don't think it did. I mean, I just, you know, you're still going to have Craig out there saying he's Satoshi and you're still going to have people saying, no, you're not. You could argue that just judging by Craig Wright's reaction, that he he genuinely seemed happy about this outcome, even though he was going to cough up 100 million US, that he at least does have a lot of money and it probably came from crypto. Probably, yeah. He created his own version of it. So who knows how much he has gotten from that? And who knows how much he had from his other businesses? Uh, Yeah, he probably has money. So maybe he can come up with $100 million. Maybe he's not worried about it because he's got lawyers that can, you know, whittle that down. Who knows? He was not running around like, oh, my God, I'm, Mm. I'm destroyed. I'm ruined. So if you were to write the ending to this story, what does Craig Wright need to do to prove who he says he is? Craig Wright would need to move a significant portion of those million Bitcoins that were mined in, you know, the first several months of Bitcoin's existence that everyone thinks Toshi Nakamoto did that have never been moved. He would have to move a lot of them. He would have to really, really in a big way, because he has no credibility with most Bitcoin people. They think he's a liar. They mm. think he's a con man. They, they don't like him. So I, I think he would have to really, really do something overwhelming that is just irrefutable. And it would have to be like moving a couple billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. If he were to ever do that, everything, the whole narrative would change. That was Paul Vigna, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Fascinating case here. Look, Tom, I don't know how much this mystery matters. Like when we heard Craig Wright after the court verdict and he was talking about the currency being, you know, for the people and kind of democratising access, does it really matter who created Bitcoin? Does it really matter who's behind the pseudonym if this is meant to be decentralised currency? I mean, I'm sure a heap of people want to know Mm. out of curiosity. I'm just not sure it changes anything. It certainly doesn't change the mission. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It it doesn't really. The whole point of blockchain is that it's decentralised, so there isn't a person in control. So, yeah, it largely is a matter of intrigue and interest. The the only impact I think it could really have is those 1.1 million coins, which is a huge amount of money. If it was Craig Wright, and, you know, as Paul said, most people don't think it is, um, hearing a little bit about the longer-term vision of it really becoming a day-to-day transaction mechanism all around the world. It sounds very idealistic. Yeah, so maybe that vision will come to fruition and whoever was behind it, there's more to play out on that vision, but we don't even know if it was Craig Wright. We don't know where it's going. We still don't know if Bitcoin will become what they promise it will be and, and whether that really would be a good thing for those people in developing countries because our banking currency and regulatory systems are there to protect people 
from unscrupulous operators. Well, I guess there's not much more we can do but then wait and see if there is a big transaction made to prove who the brains and the man or woman is behind this cryptocurrency and if it lives up to its ideals. Listener.